At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Well, winter is coming, as we've all been warned from Game of Thrones, and maybe you're not prepared for that. Maybe you need something like a long sleeve shirt, a hoodie, some sort of pullover, or maybe you just need a coffee mug to put a nice hot cocoa with some marshmallows. And you can find all those things and more at today's sponsor, which is, well, me and my merch store. We've got some new items, and you can check those out at the link that I put down below in the show notes. And while you do that, you can enjoy today's episode with our guest, Carl Forsling, who flew the CH-46 and the Osprey in the United States Marine Corps. And then, of course, when you're done doing that, you can check out the Patreon and support the show if you like. But more importantly, you can go down below if you're listening to this on Apple, leave a rating and a comment. You can leave a comment, I guess, wherever. I don't really listen to podcasts anywhere else other than on Apple. But if you do have the function to leave a uh, comment, I greatly appreciate it because it helps out with the algorithm and helps the show grow. And that's what we all want. So please do that for me and enjoy today's episode with our guest, Carl Forsling. Pedro 5-4, Battle 9-3. Hey, at this time, uh, we see no more further movement in the building, but uh, request uh, re-attack on the uh, same target location. Copy, request re-attack. We're at Mount High. Give me a test. 1-2-3-3-2-1. Oh, you did it wrong. Okay, cool. No, it's perfect. <laughs> so is it, like, super hot in Texas right now? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it has been. It's, it's, it's. Now it's just uncomfortably hot. Before it was like 105, like for weeks on end. And now it's just like a comfortable wow. 95 with about 80% humidity. So it's, you know, call that progress. Are you like kind of south part of the state or? Uh, north you Central, Dallas-Fort Worth. Oh. oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was at Fort Hood um, back in a few years ago. But, you know, they talk about the dry heat. Um, I mean, I agree with that. I think dry heat is a real, real thing because you can kind of hide from it, but you're saying 80% humidity. Well, yeah. you've got like a bunch of flooding and stuff going on, right? Well, yeah, because, uh, yeah, funny you mention that. It's like, yeah, we could talk about landscaping this time and just have it be landscaping hell. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we, you know, after getting no rain and 100 degrees for like two months straight, yeah. then you get like eight inches of rain in two days. Yeah, everything just yeah. freaking. It was crazy. I had a river in my backyard. Yeah. Yeah. I just came off a job. I was flying um, out of Louisiana and a lot of my trips were basically over Dallas. You know, I'd fly over to Arizona or other side of Texas or something. And yeah, over Dallas was constantly just storm after storm. And I remember one night or one afternoon, there were a couple of planes diverting because, you know, the wind shear was too much and they were running out of gas and they couldn't wait any longer and stuff. So and then, yeah, I saw something in the news. It was like the airport was flooding and yeah, the water was coming in through the ceiling and all this jazz. Yeah, I was just about to say, I had to say, not this last time, but like uh, last year I had a, got diverted to Austin on, on my way back to uh, DFW and then just everything started to go wrong. You know, the, all the planes that were going DFW went to Austin, which is a tiny airport, so they couldn't refuel yeah. them and then we're stuck and they want to let people off the oh, plane. Oh, really? Then the crew ran out of time. It was, it was like, they find a new crew. It, it was awful. 
Austin's a small airport. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's definitely a relatively. D, I don't know if it's a C or a D, but it's it's uh there's not many gates. It's it's like okay mid-sized city kind of uh, airport. Nothing bigger than a seven thirty-seven, yeah. I don't think. Okay. I mean, I've driven people to the airport, picked them up, but I've never actually been to the airport. I've never flown in there. So yeah, I never thought about it. I, I guess I just assumed it was bigger, but yeah, now that you mentioned it, I guess it was kind of, kind of small. Um, hmm. So what's your, uh, so it's eight thirty ish in the morning there. So I appreciate you taking, you know, time. I, I, we, we've struggled to get this going. I'm so glad the technology seems to be working because this is actually our second go at this. It was like two months ago or a month and a half ago, something yeah, like that. At least. That. Yeah, and the schedule's just been been hectic with uh, with work for me and and just timing everything. So I appreciate it. You uh, so so you've been out of the Marines now for for how long? I uh, see about seven years now. So do you still like work out? Like, are you still keep up with stuff, or you're just like, nah, I'm silly. No, I work out still. I've been trying to keep get a handle of that. Uh, um, I, I did put on a good freshman 15 after leaving the Marine Corps, <laughs> and then it took me the, the better part of a couple of years to get it off. But I think I'm almost down to fighting weights. Uh, yeah, it's always I worked out. I've kept working out the entire time. I never lagged, never stopped working out, never stopped running and lifting. Oh. But I did let the uh, um, I think I let the diet get a little bit out, out, of, out of my control for a little bit and trying to bring that in the box and get a calorie deficit going on. Um, I don't know. I yeah. think without the the structure of the military, that stuff's a lot easier to get out of your scan. Um, and yeah. I certainly like that on mine for a while. Yeah. Cause I think, I think of all the branches, the Marines are probably the most intense when it comes to the physical fitness. Yeah. It, it goes from there. Uh, it's, it's outright mockery for people who can't do that. So there's probably some <laughs> negative, some negative associations of that and some, probably some negative, uh, uh, training that goes on with with the Marines' attitude on physical fitness. I think on the pole is positive, but there's there's definitely some. Uh, they keep you keep you honest, that's for sure. It's, it's I, I pictured almost like CrossFit cult status for the Marines of of working out. Oh yeah, I, the, I was. Yeah, the Marine. You know, it's like the other services are military. The Marine Corps is the only one that's actually a cult, and uh, yeah, it's yeah. kind of like that. <laughs> I, well, I went for a run this morning, which I, I absolutely hate doing, you know, I'm 44, but I appreciate it in a way that 20 year old me never did, you know, 30 year old me never did. Um, I'm certainly not fast and I certainly don't go far, but you know, I, I appreciate the fact that I did it and I do like how I feel after I've survived it, though the recovery seems to take much longer. You know, it used to be, I could sit on the porch with a glass of water for, you know, five, 10 minutes and it was fine. Now it's like, well, let me sit here for about 35, 40 minutes and then go take a shower. And oh, I'm still sweating like a hog. But what I was thinking about, um, Marines and, and physical fitness, you know, in preparation of, of speaking with you, but it, I, I was thinking about a time I'd gone to Fort, uh, or, or Fort Camp Pendleton, uh, Pendleton, right? San Diego. Yes. Yeah. Gorgeous place, by the way, it was mm-hmm. a great top tier choice on the Marines for picking that um, I guess they were making up for the, the Camp Lejeune experience, which is not quite as well, uh, well received. But, um, I was, I remember just going on base one time we were doing, we were doing some training or teaching out there and seeing these Marines like running up this like hill or something, but you know, they were wearing boots and just the idea of running in boots just ugh, makes me feel gross. You guys do that all the time. Uh, it depends. I mean, definitely it's more common on the, the ground side than the air that you're going to see yeah. that kind of training, but there's always yeah. that 
Marines have this every Marine rifleman thing, so occasionally just even in the air wing, we get somebody with just a, uh, I don't know, wild hair and decide to do something like that. And that's probably the, the if I was talking about negative things about training in the Marines earlier, it's just that, uh, you know what, you'll pay, you'll pay for it when you're older and it's fine. And it's the whole idea of smart training. And that's the thing that I am paying for a little bit now. Like the reason I didn't go to the gym before coming into work this morning was because my back is sore and I'm not going to lay that on the Marines. But it's probably on the attitude that I developed there. It's like, oh, just keep going until until you feel like you're about to die, and then dial it back by about one yeah. percent, you'll be fine. Um, right. That that's the sort of thing that you know breeds, and that's the sort of thing that you know the culture that you you live in there. Yeah, I, I think, and I think that's certainly true across the board, except probably in the Air Force. But um, of like this mentality, I remember being in the military and early on. And looking at the age of 40, you know, roughly 40, you know, because most guys, if you do 20 years, you're probably retiring about 40, 42, 43, something like that. And I remember just seeing that as like, well, then shit, you're you're old as hell and you're you're close to death because you just associate the word retire, you know, retirement with your you now you're waiting to die. <laughs> yeah. Um and I and so I think I think a lot of guys probably have that in the military when they're young, particularly. And so, yeah, it's this kind of like idea like I don't I'm not going to have to worry about how beat up my body is um, because by the time I retire, what difference is it going to make? And then you get to that that point and you're like, holy shit, I got like another 40 years to go, you know, potentially. And I feel like hell <laughs> It takes way too long to get out of bed and I can barely do anything. I can barely move. I went to Pilates the other day with my wife, um, which was a mistake. It's not hard, but you realize how immobile you are. You know, when the instructor's literally laughing at you, like, holy cow, you can't even twist that direction, you know, or something like that. Um, and it's because, yeah, you don't take, you don't think about those things when you're a young Marine or a young soldier. You're, you're thinking about how, how many push ups can I do and how many, I guess you guys do pull ups and stuff. Oh, um, yeah. I, I thought uh, stretching was for sissies until about maybe, yeah, I don't know the the way too recent past and it's like if i started like okay now i got like actually you know when i started having this thing where it's like i couldn't put my socks on without like doing this mad lunge it's like okay i gotta work on this and i was like all right i'm gonna turn on the yoga and just see what this is about like all right i, I yeah. can do this you know that's that's part of fitness too you know that sort of thing it, it really is um it, i agreed it wasn't until actually it was on my last deployment 2018 17 and, uh, and I became like a gym rat and I, not in the sense that I was like trying to lift a lot of weights, but I was like, I had a lot of free time. So I, I did make myself go to the gym cause there was nothing else to do. And yeah, I spent so much time stretching and it really benefited. And unfortunately I've slacked off in recent times, but you know, that's what I've been telling young guys, like, man, get it, make it a part of your routine, like spend 20 minutes stretching and you, you don't care about it now when you're young, but just making that part of your habit and part of your, your you know, your culture of fitness is certainly going to help in the future. And I, I wish I could get back to it. And yeah, yoga. I mean, my wife's been beating me up forever that, that I should do yoga with her. And then of course, of course, that's what the Pilates instructor said, you know, Oh, you need to get them to do yoga. And I was like, God damn it. Now I'm gonna have to do yoga. Cause it doesn't matter if your wife tells you, but if, if the fitness instructor says it, well then, then you have to do it. But were you always like, like when you came into the Marines, I mean, were you pretty physically active like before you came in? Yeah, I mean, I joined, you know, did the RTC thing is how I, uh -huh. I sort of came in. So um, 
freshman in college, you know, start, you know, doing the classes and the, the drills and all that in conjunction with re- your regular coursework. Right. So yeah. my way in, you know, I did, you know, football and wrestling in high school and that was kind of my athletic background, you know, sort of trained for that. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I did intramurals in college, but nothing huge. And then, you know, the ROTC sort of indoctrinates you into that whole physical culture of doing, you know, the three to five mile runs and the calisthenics and sort of a different kind of working out. And I always like, I always like to work on my own, but just to remind me that my first Marine Corps marathon, I, again, I got bullied into doing it um, when I was a freshman in college. And, you know, one of the upperclassmen RTC is like, hey, you want to do the Marine Corps marathon? And it's like, I had no idea what that was about. And it was this is the day before there was a lottery and all that. You could just pay your, you know, absurdly low fee and get in at that point. And hmm. uh, literally, I'd never run a, a run longer than I think maybe six miles. And it's just the, the military PT, which is like three to six miles or whatever, and, and calisthenics. Yeah. And I got, you know, cajoled into this marathon, and I got back, and I thought I was going to die. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I had a fifth-story walk-up in my dorm, you know, and the lady at the oh, front desk like, you want the key to the elevator? Because you look awful. <laughs> um, you know, having to walk upstairs backward for three days, you know, it's like, okay, this is not the smart way to train. But, yeah, that was that was – um how, how long is that how long is a marathon yeah 26 miles it oh so it's a normal okay okay i wasn't sure yeah god damn <laughs> yeah i well it's funny because you say you know you were like saying three to six miles as if like that's normal and probably it isn't a marines i've run six miles once in my entire life and it was like we weren't prepared for it. We were doing like a post run, which usually are kind of a joke, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we did it at Fort Rucker, you know, and, and, and I, the whole, you know, all the various organization stuff all lined up and we go for a run and, you know, you kind of get into these routines of these types of runs. We're like, okay, it's, it's going to be four miles. This is where we started. Of course, this is where we're going to end or somewhere close by. And we, we get back to that point and we just keep going. And we're like, oh, oh my God, you know, it was just this mind fuck at this point. And we just keep running and running and we ran six miles and that was the only time I've ever run that far. And I, I hated every minute of it, but I can't even imagine 20 and, and without doing any sort of preparation. I mean, that's, that's murder. Yeah. Was, I mean, it was decent. You know, I was running decent times at that point. I was what, 19 and, you know, I was probably doing right. a between a six and seven minute mile. So, you know, pretty fast, wow. but there's no way. Yeah. And my, you know, fairly decent cardiovascular sh- shape, but if your body is not prepared for 26 miles of pounding and you just go do it without, that yeah. is, that was horrible. And then I went to, like every year I was in college, you know, it got slightly less miserable wow. every time, but, uh, um, did, but yeah, that did was, you ever that do was, any other marathons? No, nah, I haven't done it. Uh, my, my wife just started doing marathons this past year. So she's going to mm. do the Marine Corps marathon this fall. So now I think next year I'm going to be obligated to do it since she's, done i did my last marine corps marathon like 27 years ago and she just started so now i'll have to do one next year i think or something but my uh, sister-in-law enjoys running for whatever reason and then her friend and they were doing these marathons at disney world where you would like run through the park have you ever heard of that oh yeah that's like a huge thing for for like the the disney crowd yeah 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 i I mean it's expensive as shit too but uh yeah i'd never heard of that but it seemed kind of interesting like i guess you run through the park and, and all this stuff but yeah, I don't know. That's that's God. That's such a long way. And yep. and didn't the guy that ran the first technical marathon like he died like at the end? 
Well, I think <laughs> that it, that's the legend, right? Back in like, uh, so I think it was a Greek Sparta. battle. I think it was Spartans. Yeah. He had to had to run back and give the word of victory, and he dropped dead right after he uh, yeah. passed the word to the leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which in today's parlance, the military, like, this guy's a quitter. <laughs> yes, maybe he, he didn't realize, so he's he's dead to us. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Suck it up. Oh Lord. So, uh, being uh, you said ROTC, how does that work? Because I know, and I'm going to make fun of you for a second. You know, we always call the Marines like the Navy Infantry, um, because the Marine Corps falls under the Department of the Navy. Blah blah blah. And so I know, like, there's no like Marine Academy, right? I mean, if you were to go through the Academy, you'd go to the Naval Academy and then become a Marine. But how does that work for ROTC? Is it does it have Marine in ROTC or is it Navy ROTC? It's kind of works, you know, like a smaller version of what's at the Naval Academy. So, but I okay. and, and there's different ways to start because some people start in one and go to the other because they figure out that they, you know, had just lean a different way. Um, but I, you know, out of college, you know, I needed some way to pay for, you know, college, you know, coming out of high school, and and so it turned out that so I applied for it. I applied for Marine Option Navy ROTC from the beginning. So, okay. Um, you know, it's so you go there and you have sort of you do a lot of the same classes. The first couple of years of the the basic class, I think, are pretty much the same, if I remember correctly. They may have obviously changed the curriculums. I've left many, many years ago, but you're doing the naval science, you know, for three days a week. And you've got a two hour of drill once a week where it's either, you know, marching or they give you a guest speaker from, you know, some military command nearby or something like that. And then physical training. I think we did ours three mornings a week. Um, but it's just, you know, it's the Navy classes, but you adjust them for the Marines. And then the summer training, right. again, the first couple of years is very similar. You know, one's, you know, you spend uh, like a month, month and a half on a, a Navy ship one summer. You spend uh, you get kind of a, a sampler platter. At the time they called it Cortramid. It's some, you know, one of those naval acronyms that has more letters than the word it's supposed to shorten. Uh <laughs> Where you, where you have a week with the subs, a week with the surface ships, a week with the Marines, a week with aviation. But then after your junior year is when you go to officer candidate school in Quantico. And that's where kind of all the officer sources in the Marine Corps kind of marry up. Um, except sometimes Naval Academy, there's been years where they made them do OCS and years and they didn't. And they the policy changes periodically. But in the end, everyone comes through Quantico for, any depending on the commissioning program, six to ten weeks of officer oriented harassment you know and then you <laughs> you finish up senior year you commission and then marines all go to the basic school um for six months of kind of infantry leader training kind of thing um yeah. you know so it's called tbs is the acronym i guess they figured putting the as part of the acronym is worse than just calling it bs but um <laughs> <laughs> but everyone, you know, whether you're an aviator or a grunt or whatever it is, you go through that six months of how to be a platoon leader kind of school. Um, and if you're an actual infantry officer, you go through more training, but everyone gets that basic six months. And then you go to whatever your training is, where it's flight school or whatever. Yeah, calling it BS would probably not be the right the right move, though I've, I've seen worse. We had a course, uh, the infantry school at Fort Benning ran a course called the, what was it called? Army Reconnaissance and Surveillance Course, I think. Or some, some R, so Reconnaissance Arsh? Leaders. Yeah, it was like R, Army Reconnaissance Leaders Surveillance Course, I think. And they called it Arslick. <laughs> Which, you know, and you're laughing because we, you kind of see where I'm going with this. But to the average, to the average American ears, 
that doesn't sound off, right? Because we don't really use the word arse. Uh, but but I worked with these uh, Australians. Um, they, they were like there was an exchange program, so we'd always have an Australian officer come over, and every freaking time they showed up and they would you know get briefed and we, or we'd be talking about all these other courses that were along ours and arslick and they would just start laughing because yeah to them it was just straight up ass lick and they and i'm you know they were like well, who, who did no one sound this out and i'm like ah, it just it doesn't sound the same to us but you know the palatable humor from our uh, aussie friends but yeah bs so uh, oh i was about to say just remember so this whole military thing mindset is so different than civilian obviously there's british and american english but for ours right. you know my last name's forsling so i went through the first 20 what 20 21 <laughs> years of my life and no one had said anything to me i was right. at officer candidate school for freaking five minutes and staff <laughs> started and said foreskin get in my office and <laughs> wait a minute no one had thought of that for 20 years, you know, including like, you know, little kids and all this. And it took me exactly five minutes in the Marine Corps for someone to think of that. And then of course my call sign in the Marines when I was finally became a pilot with skin. And it's like, yeah, there's something. And my, I asked my sister, Hey, may ever told you that it was like, no, I, I never thought about that till you told me like, yes, that's the difference between, you know, military people and and normal people. Oh, it's well, and I'm laughing so hard because I, when the first time I saw your name, I had the exact same thought. <laughs> so, so, so absolutely. It's, it's the military mindset. Um, we butcher each other and, and the Aussies and Brit- they all do the same thing. You know, the, the Brits or the uh, Aussies had nicknames for everyone. Uh, we were working with the SAS and I was talking to their troop commander or whatever he was. And uh, we'd been working together for, for months and I go to, to walk away. I have a conversation with walk away. And he's like, he's like, all right, all right, Harry, that's good. And I'm like, Harry, my name's not Harry, like at all. Like, does this motherfucker not know my name? And um, and I was talking to one of the other Aussies later, and he's like, oh no, that's that's because your last name's Harris. So he just shortened it to Harry. And he'd be like, Harry or Harrow would be like something that people would call you in Australia. It's like, oh, okay. But you're right, the military, we we tend to find the dirtiest connotation of any word that we can and then run with it. So foreskin makes sense. So in this ROTC, I'm just curious, a quick question. If you elected not to stay in the Marine, like let's say you had all these Navy days, you need to go see the ships and, and all this stuff. And you're like, Oh, I like this. Could you, could you go back? Could you change your mind and not do the Marine option? Uh, you have to apply. I mean, just like anything else in the oh, military, okay. you got to do the paperwork. I, I saw people go from Navy to Marine and Marine to Navy. It was not like a huge big deal. Now, if you want sure. to quit altogether, there's also like, like anything else in the military, like a drop dead date. I think you can pretty much quit and no one gives you any hard time until sophomore year. And if you go further than yeah. that, they start, you know, threatening you with right. having to, you know, be an E1 and, you know, you know, chipping paint on some, you know, scow out of Hong Kong. But, uh, um, yeah, Did you ever that, have that happen to anybody? Do you remember anybody like getting kicked out and having to do that? No, I, the worst, I, I never saw anyone get, I've heard of it, but that's always sort of, you know, apocryphal. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I knew a guy who, you know, I did know right. some people who quit late and they had, you know, do some reimbursement type of thing for what they gotten mm. for, you know, if the, if the military paid for their school in some way. Right. Yeah. We had a guy, one or two, one or two guys, I think, I think they popped hot over the summer. They went home and smoking doobies 
and then uh, got in trouble. And I, I think they made them enlist or something. But but like you said, th- th- that might have just been the story. Like, I know they popped hot. Uh, that's 100%. But what happened to them, I don't know. But that's what I had heard. Mm. So w- when you elected, though, to join the Marines, I mean, what was your goal? What did you want to do? You know, my original goal was I wanted to be a uh, infantry officer and then do, at the time, the big thing was reconnaissance. You know, that was the yeah. elite field in the Marines. What um, year was this? This was, uh, yeah, 91 was when I started college. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Um, so this was, so I was graduating the same year the goal for it ended. Now, though, everything was, you know, military was cool at the time. And that seemed like the, yeah. the coolest thing I could possibly do was join the Marines and be an infantry officer, which, which is still, I'm not, I say it's not a cool job, but I did the, uh, at the time it was called the uh, EQTFAR. Um, was the aviation the written test you take to see you know the space mm. you know, whether you're good at spatial relationships? Yeah, the and all aptitude. That sort of, I think sure. now it's ASTB, and they may have gone to some other exotic branch now. Um, yeah. But you know, it's all the things where they they show you a cube with like colors on different sides, and it, you, know, you unfold <laughs> it, what colors are in what boxes, and all the sort of yeah. the sort of things supposed to tell you whether you, you could do do this sort of work. So I did pretty well in that, and then the, my advisor was like, wow, it's a good score, and. You know, eventually, and I done the uh, that one thing where I told you earlier about how you do a week with each branch of the Navy and Marines. And I was like, wow, this this flying seems like it, it gets you a lot further, a lot easier than walking. And right, you know, from that point, once the mental paradigm had shifted, I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. And you know, you know so you graduate, I'm guaranteed at least a chance at you know flying something really cool. Yeah. I'm like, all right, I can do that. So, you know, so so yeah, I put it in there for the you know the Marines offer what's called an aviation guarantee and. There's different forms for different commissioning sources, but basically, at least if you qualify for it, you at least get to go through TBS and you get to go to flight school and then take your chances there. Comfort wins 100% of the time, uh, because I remember being a young young man getting ready to join the military, and 100% I wanted to be an infantry, airborne ranger, special forces, you know, playing in the woods and 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 all being sneaky and stuff, just like you're talking about. And, and I went through my first year of, I went to a military school. It's like a two-year military program. And that first year, I mean, that's what I was all about. Like, oh, yes, I'm going to be an infantry guy. Um, and then we did this, uh, we call it, back then it was called advanced camp. Now they call it LDAC or something. But you spend like five or six weeks at, uh, we did Fort Lewis, Washington. And you do all, all this cadet stuff. But uh, one of the days they have like career day. And they have, you know, tanks and artillery and helicopters and everything's parked out uh, for you to, to, to investigate and learn about. And I remember going to this, uh, to the tank, the, the M1, they had M1 out there and there was the sergeant, you know, showing all the cadets the tanks and stuff. And for whatever reason, he looks at me, I was just standing there and he looks at me and he's like, so cadet, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be in the infantry. And the look on his face, I can, I'm, I'm sure my mind has probably blown it way out of proportion from what it really was. But I remember this look on his face as almost if I had told him his grandmother was terminally ill or something like this, just this sadness, you know, across his face. And he just goes, why? Why carry your weapon when your weapon can carry you? And I don't know what it is, but that statement just hit me like as if he'd slapped me across the face. And it made so much sense. And I was like, holy cow, he's right. I am inherently lazy. <laughs> and I don't want to, I don't want to carry shit. I don't like running. I don't like carrying heavy things. Yes. And I was a convert right then and there. Um, and that's, that's end up how I, how I got into tanks. Um, and then, and then it just, you know, exacerbated, right. I'm on tanks and then I see helicopters and then, and then, you know, you hear the legends, I'm sure it happens in the Marine Corps too, you know, oh the, 
pilots have mandatory, you know, eight hours of sleep and they get, you know, newspapers delivered to them in their tents and, you know, you know, all these, all these tales that you hear. And so I was like, well, shit, I, I want to be a part of that. So yeah, comfort wins a hundred percent of the time. So you get a guaranteed slot, uh, or, or a guaranteed opportunity to get a slot. I mean, uh, how did you, what, so what happens? You graduate, you finish college, you're an officer, blah, blah, blah. What, what's that? Yeah. So you do the, the six months of, you know, of, you know, carrying your own rifle in the woods and, and you, you, uh, yeah. you deal with that for that six months and that, you know, but really, you know, and, and then you see all the other people select for whatever they wanted. And, and obviously it's just the, the perverse part of military MOS selection is that everyone gets exactly the opposite of what they're best suited for. So <laughs> the most motivated, you know, cause everyone else is competing for based on their grades and all this other stuff. But then the yeah. military throws in like, well, we can't have all the hard chargers going to infantry. So we got to send at least some guys who don't give a shit there. So then they'll pick some guys from the bottom of the class who just wanted to lay low and do, you know, be adjutants or something. And they'll send them like, Oh, you got to go to infantry school. So you watch that chaos unfold, but luckily, because you have a contract, you had to proceed to Pensacola um, unmolested. And, uh, you know, Navy and Marine Corps pretty much go through the same training almost all the way through the end. And so you do the uh, uh, aviation pre-flight indoctrination. It's either AI or API, depending on when you went through. And it's just sort of the, the six weeks of this is this is the front of the plane. This is the wings. This is an elevator kind of thing. And then some physical training mixed in there and then the swim qual, which is probably like of all the things there, you really have to be a serious rock to not be able to do the aerodynamics and AI or, you know, the navigation is like how to turn a whiz wheel kind of stuff. Um, but yeah. like anything like, dumb, you know, gets people it's a swim qual because you got to do both the helicopter swim qual and that with the little dunking machine that spins upside yeah. down and the fixed wing one you know, and the one where you get dragged through on a parachute. So you have to do all that and you have to swim a mile with your flight suit on and tread water with your, you know, vest without inflating the, the bladder, all that were stuff. You, were you like a big swimmer? Like, did you enjoy swimming? Were you good at it? No, I mean, I was, I knew how to swim, but I was by no means a person who goes to the pool to work out or, you know, right. yeah, like I go to the beach. Right. And right, yeah. definitely the whole, it's more the fear than anything. I mean, because everyone there, you know, is in some degree of physical fitness. There's nothing like insane there, but you have to be comfortable, right? So you yeah. go there and, you know, you do the uh, the dunking, you know, the, the helicopter dunker. You go in the back of this, this thing. And the first time it's like, okay, this because you, you're allowed to look. You're allowed to use the, uh, the heads bottles, the little oxygen, like a tiny little scuba tank they give you. Um, yeah. And you, you can use that. But then at the last run, it's like it's simulated at night. So they don't let you have the bottle and they give you these speedos. They're painted over black so, or speedos, speedos of goggles, not speedos. The like yeah. the <laughs> not banana hammocks. Right. Yeah. yeah. Although that'd be a whole new sort of fear. But <laughs> well, I was wondering maybe in the Marines and Navy, you guys did it differently, <laughs> but I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. But yeah. yeah. So like the whole thing. So it's really this, it's the, the mental things you're doing the same task, but now you can't see and you got, you know, and they put yeah. those different iterations in there. So it's never like the, Cause some people are just like, you know, are like 99% muscle and they just sink straight to the bottom. And that's, you know, being able to tread water is, is the hard part. But for most people, it's like, all right, you know, the dunker and all that stuff. And then the different egress drills are the things that really, uh, you know, set people on edge sometimes. Did, did you guys have to do the cross cockpit escape? Or like yeah, well, I think open? not that initial one. As I, as I remember, 
the technology really wasn't there the first time. It was really just a huge can that you swam out of and they get, you know, and right. then the, like one run, they made you like, everyone has to go out the back. Right. Now, but like yeah. by the time I left the Marines, they'd gotten this freaking this super high speed one where it does, it could go over, like, it didn't just go in and flip 180. It could go in and then diver makes it flip like 90 or 130 mm-hmm. or 200 degrees and go all the way through vertical. And then they have oh, wow. these, they could select, like they'd actually secure some of the hatches so you couldn't go through them. And yeah. then like, they really made, went crazy. They, they actually, instead of making it just night with goggles, they turned out the lights in the room and like put yeah. like thunderclap uh, noises in the background to simulate you're in a thunderstorm. They really went like, oh, wow. full Disney on the, you know, in the last <laughs> 10 years or so. Yeah. I, I don't remember. I mean, the last time I did one was, was flight school. Cause obviously we didn't have to do it as, as much as I'm sure you guys probably did. But I, I remember having to do the cross cockpit one and I don't think they locked your door. They just told you, you can't go out it and you got to go out the other guys. Um, and that was a sure way to get kicked in the face. Um, trying to follow the other guy out. Uh, but, but those heeds bottles you're talking about, you know, probably the same for you guys. They didn't refill them until they were completely empty and there's no gauge to tell you how much air is in it. And so you would get one. And I remember doing this, doing the cross cockpit, they gave it to me and I take one breath and that was it. Mm-hmm. Boom, it was done. And I, I mean, I don't even think I got a full breath cause it just stopped, you know? And if you've ever tried to breathe when you don't have, there's no oxygen, suddenly, you know, your lungs just like collapse on themselves. And so you're stuck in this thing trying to get out. It's dark. Like you said, I think they did turn the lights off. I don't think we had the, the speedos on. Uh, yeah, that's, it's, you're right. It's fear is the, the overwhelming thing. Swimming is not the hard part. It's just keeping it together. Yeah. I don't miss that. Yeah. We had to do it every four years. So that was, that was the, uh, you oh, knew wow. it was coming. Like I said, the first time I was young, I was like, yeah, this is like, this is like a Disney ride. This is awesome. You know, it's a little bit, you know, yeah. you get a little scared like a roller coaster, but then, but by the time I was like done this, like the fourth or fifth time, it's like, just, just make yeah. this stop, you know, and it's, Luckily, they give they're a little bit easier on you the older you are. But you're going to the first time. It's like you know some divers the, ch- the chance to like give an officer a hard time. It's like, you right. know, oh yeah, yes, yeah. you went out the wrong door. Do it again. It's like uh, you know, but uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's not something I looked forward to towards the end of my career for sure. And it's such a contrast of what I had to do going into the airlines. We went through training and one we did one day of like um escape and survival training you know the aircraft crash you know like how to open the doors and it had to how to slide down the slide which you know we would do multiple times just to have fun but then we did the water portion you know and and if you've ever flown on a plane you already know how to how to use the uh the flotation device and where the little thing is to blow in it you know so we're doing all that and then we just set up the giant uh the giant raft and climb in it and set up the roof, you know, it was just like this very sublime, like, Oh, let's just play in the pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, a huge, a huge contrast to, yeah, the dunker, dunker heads, all that stuff, which ours was like three days long, but I don't think we didn't have to do it again, unless you had some sort of overwater mission coming up, then they would make you like recertify. So I'm sure like the soft guys do it, but regular dumb conventional guys like me, we didn't have to redo it all the time. Right. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. 
Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Um, and so you guys learn fixed wing and rotary wing, or, or I guess you assess for rotary wing after your your basic time is done and you've you've done fixed wing stuff. That's right. Yeah, it's it's kind of again, you know, now they've got tilt rotors, a whole other combination of stuff. But basically, think of it: yeah. you do the API or AI, which is six weeks, and then you go to roughly six months of fixed wing training as a single engine turboprop. You know, at the time it was a T34, now it's a T6, but everyone, whether you're, you don't know what you're going to get. You know, it could be jets, could be cargo planes, could be helos. So you do six months of that. And then based on your grades and what they need and what you ask for, probably not in that order, uh, they'll sign you get jets or cargo, you know, multi-engine, which is in the Marine Corps just a C-130. And then, tilt rotors or helicopters, you know, and then they, the percentages vary every class, but you know, you pick one of those things. And then like for me, at the, the first time I got helicopters, they just go to, to Whiting field, the other side of Whiting field, um, and, uh, do six to eight months of helicopter training, um, for tilt rotor guys. Now they've changed the pipeline a couple times, but roughly think you're going to go through part of the multi-engine syllabus. So the, the twin engine syllabus in Corpus Christi, and you're also going to do part of the helicopter syllabus, and then you're going to report for your V-22 training in a V-22. Um, and obviously, there's a separate you know program for the cargo planes, and the, and the jets have their own school as well. Did you did you want tilt rotors? Uh, yeah, well, so I, I transitioned later in my career, so it wasn't an option when okay. I started. So I okay. wanted helicopters, you know. I, you know, I started school on you know, be jets, and I like I watched Full Metal Jacket, and they're not uh, in the Apocalypse Now, and I'm like, oh, the helicopters. So I got back to my moto. I wanted to, you know, yeah. shoot things low and work in LZs and stuff like that. Um, so I got yeah, helicopters. I want to be slightly uncomfortable. That way, I feel like I'm doing something, but I don't want to be too uncomfortable. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's like I feel like a marine, but I still have to. I still go back to a place that usually has a warm bed. You know, right? Um, yeah. And you know. It, so yeah, I got, to, I, you know, I did, I wanted, you know, full confession. I did want to, I did, my first selection was H1 Cobras. Didn't get that. I got a CH46 uh, E sort of it looks for army guys. It looks like a Chinook that got stuck in the dryer. Um, it's yeah. just like a small tandem rotor helicopter. And so I, yeah. I did the tour of that. And then the opportunity to do tilt rotors came and I transitioned from helicopters to tilt rotors. Uh, um, I've been at about what, eight or 10 years at that point. How did you like the the forty six? I, I liked it a lot. I mean, it's it's. I will say it's underpowered. Um, tend to yeah. over torque it if you're not careful. Um, but as far as how it flies, I mean, it, it's very, uh, um, you know, for that size of helicopter, very maneuverable. Um, you can do pretty much anything with it in you know in terms of access to the wind. You know, fairly forgiving. Um, so yeah, for what it does it, it was pretty good. And that that's twin engine right yes yeah okay yeah it is basically a smaller chinook yeah except um, it carries about the same as a blackhawk so it's, it's sort of like you okay. get more volume yeah. than you have weight um which sort of leads to weird things if you don't plan your you know your load right what and what do what do the marines primarily use that for is it cargo or do they do, do like assaults with it so like the 46 the type stuff it's all gone now. It's been gone for about seven years. Um, sure. Yeah, V twenty two replaced it, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's primarily people. So we use the fifty threes, which are the heavy lift for stuff, yeah. um, and then forty sixes would be for you know a 
assaults. So it'd be mostly passengers in the back, you know, typically, okay. you know, yeah, you had seats for 24, but then he took out most of the, you know, a few of those for random stuff. So really typically configured yeah. for 18. And then depending on how much gas you had, you know, you're probably talking 12 to 15 loaded troops is probably comfortable depending on, you know, what's going on in the temperature and everything. So for the Marines, I mean, your, your whole shtick, right, is, is the fighting in the littorals, right? Like along the coast and, and making beachheads and all that stuff. Was that kind of like your focus when you were a 46 guy or you just focused on like, okay, we, we got to deliver this much this much ass to the, to the beach and in these type of environments or, or what? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's amphibious assaults, the Marines, you know, it's their jam. So it's, yeah. it's delivering troops, you know, in a, you know, to at, to the X, if you will, you know, in a, you know, helicopter assault. I mean, you did, and it's typically, you know, you just, your plan for the worst case is generally from the ship to an objective, you know, ashore, you know, in some sort of, you know, size unit, you know, starting usually, Anywhere from section and the Marines typically, you know, the biggest lift you're probably going to do is, you know, eight to, you know, maybe 10 or 12 assaults and then the the heavy lift and escorts there. So, you know, which is typically like a, you know, a, multi, a battalion lift, but in multiple waves, probably the biggest thing you see, right. you know, it's a little bit generally a little bit more smaller scale in the army, but, you know, not, not always, um, you know, and then yeah. occasionally you do something a little bit more exotic, you know, whether it fast rope or, you know, spy or, you know, some, something cooler right. than that. But, uh, but usually it's, it's people to the objective. That's, that's what you do. And occasionally it's, you know, taking the, you know, the PMC PAX mail cargo is what we call it going from ship to ship, you know, carrying bags of mail or, you know, Jimmy, who has a tummy wake to the ship as a, the doctor, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, so yeah. you know, whatever, whatever you need utility assault to do. Did you guys, did you guys get to practice that a lot? Like, like legitimately practice, a amphibious assault or was it just kind of piecemeal training? Uh, I mean, in various size, you know, when I was in the, there was the Marine expeditionary unit, uh, mm. was kind of the, the focus. So you're always go, you know, gearing up for a, uh, deployment with a Mew is what they call it. Right. So it's, it's basically a six to eight month deployment and you do a series of about six months of workups prior. And a Mew is basically a battalion of infantry, a squadron of aviation, and then a, uh, combat service support element with all the other cooks, bakers, candlestick makers, all the rest. Um, so yeah. you're focused on a bunch of missions that they would do. And that was a lot of them were smaller, you know, it'd be like company level stuff or, or uh, yeah. you know, humanitarian aid, you know, they had some more exotic missions. And, but the, towards the end of your workups, then you would do some legit, you know, battalion size lifts of some sort. And it might be a combination of, you know, helicopters taking the helicopter. There's one company is always designated as the helicopter company is primary and you take them to, you know, this objective. And then the one that would come in via amphibious, uh, you know, Amtrak's basically like an amphibious yeah. armored personnel carrier. They'd come in on the beach and then they beat up. Um, so you're gearing yeah. towards, that was like one of your culminating things usually be a, a battalion amphibious assault of some sort. How did that change with the V-22? So I was on the first uh, MU deployment of V-22. That was my uh, uh, first deployment with V-22s. And that was kind of the thing. It was no one had any idea how to do it. I mean, it's conceptually it did, but no one was had the muscle memory. So we'd yeah. be doing exercises like for the for that that six months before we go on deployment. And the first ones that the boat would literally be like right next to the shore, like they'd always been. Like 
for helicopters, just sometimes you'd be a little too close just because it's easier for everyone to not take all day for this exercise to happen. <laughs> so they park the ship close we, to the we ship. We train to a time, not a standard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're like, yeah, you could do 50. How's five sounds? Five miles right. from the shore. Um, yeah. Which is fine for 46 and everyone's happy. It's like, hey, we'll all be done, you know, you know, within a yeah. couple periods of darkness. We'll still be in our crew day. Um, but you do five miles in V-22, it's like you can barely take off, get out the airplane and back again, like right. and still make your radio calls you have to make to get onto the range. So it's yeah. like, it's like, dude, I can see the freaking LZ from the front of the ship. And <laughs> like, guys, this is, I mean, we're all going to wink, wink, not, you know, nudge, nudge here on the training piece, but can we yeah. do something that's useful? Right. So by the end of the six months, we're starting to get a little smarter and, you know, maybe park the boat like couple hundred miles away and instead of having always every time like figuring out some bizarre scenarioism where the other like the cobras could catch up you know uh <laughs> before we could go into the lz we'd you know, okay if we do this right okay the v22s will go we'll synchronize us so the harriers are overhead when they arrive instead of figuring out a way to get the hell you know starting two days before to have the helicopters uh you know on the lz or whatever yeah yeah that time distance math you know, it changes so much and, and I guess, yeah, you don't think about it, especially, you know, I hate to, I hate to speak poorly about the military, but you know, especially when new equipment like that comes along, generally the people who have to think through that stuff, aren't the guys that are messing with it and they just don't, they don't grasp it. But yeah, I mean, you're talking about a, a fundamental shift in, in the doctrine. Yeah. It's something like in a lot of ways, you know, and it's, I'd say the Osprey is unique in this regard, but it's, it's such a change from what was before it. It's almost like yeah. an iPhone and a regular cell phone or a cell phone and a regular yeah. phone. It's like, yeah, you understand that, yeah, it's portable and it has the stuff you can do on it, but it's like, it, it it's more than just doing the old thing faster. It, it right. makes you do everything different. And that's sometimes that yeah. takes a lot of just mental adjustment to do. Yeah, and then it highlights gaps because, like you said, I mean, who's, you know, the 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 theory is right. You're going to have gunships with you, but if you're outpacing the gunships, I mean, what's a V twenty two cruise at, roughly? Uh, yeah, you're rough. I mean, depending on what you're, whether you're going for gas or speed, you're somewhere, you know, yeah. around two twenty. If you want to be, if you have a little higher threat, you're going to be going a little faster, um, just to be able to yeah. have more energy on the aircraft. But so. You know, 46, we're usually planning for anywhere from 90 to 120. And 120 is like the aircraft is shaking, like, you know, it's going to die. So um, being able to go 220 effortlessly and 240, if you put a little more gas on, it's a huge change. Yeah, I mean, you're talking, what, like four miles a minute type movement and nothing's going to keep up with that. I mean, we had the problem with flying Kiowas. We'd, you know, we'd go a whopping 90 knots and they'd want us to escort a medevac you know, who's going balls to the wall to go pick up somebody. And like, we can't even keep up with this guy, you know? And so it's, it's sort of like theoretical escort. Like, well, we're within radio distance. So if you run into trouble, just know that we're already on the way and we'll be there <laughs> in, in a few minutes. Just hold on. Um, but, and, and then the Osprey, I mean, it doesn't have, it's not armed. Right? Uh, well, you, got you, guns. so you got a rear door gun. So it's, it's a ramp type okay. system. So you, out the back ramp, um, you get a guy with keep it's a either a seven six two uh, or a fifty cal uh, out the back yeah. ramp. Um, not a whole lot of use on the way in. Um, sure. That <laughs> a lot more use on the way out. Uh, you can it, there are are a limited number of 
it's called defensive weapon systems, which is a looks like a V2 uh, R2D2, but it comes out the bottom or the uh, the hell hole or the you know normally fast rope or, or yeah. operate the cargo hook out of. It's like a, uh, a Gatling gun on a turret, um, hmm. and you can use that uh, for sort of a self escort kind of thing. Um, okay. But you know it's really not you know when you're talking those sort of speeds, seven six two doesn't really get the the up and atom you need it's uh, when you're closing at the LZ that fast. So um, yeah. honestly, you, ideally, you know, you're, you've got scoped out the zone well enough and you've got a detached escort that's meeting you there in some fashion. Um, yeah. But yeah, having the door guns, you know, yeah, we're lying your speed in and out is, is a lot of your defense in this case. So the first time you flew one of those, I mean, I, I've sat in an Osprey, I've never flown in one, but I've sat in the cockpit and kind of looked out the window and, and had a guy talk about it and talking about the, you know, when the nacelles or whatever you guys call them come down with the, the, uh, the, the blades and are like passing right by. I mean, is that unnerving as shit? It just seems like it would be like this giant blade just right by you. I mean, when you, I guess when you stop and think about it, it kind of is, I, I look out, you know, the, you know, from the pilot side, I look out, it's like, that's pretty cool. You know, that, that big ass yeah. blade is going right outside the window and it actually is yeah. it's closer than you think. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, the, really what you think the acceleration is just for someone who has a helicopter background, the acceleration is just ridiculous, you know? Yeah. Um, so it goes from all the way up to all the way down. The mechanical speed is about 11 seconds. Now, depending on the, the conditions, it's not going to, you're not going to get all the way down 11 seconds, but you are, you know, you're going well over a hundred knots, you know, not too far away from the LZ, uh, on your way up to 200 plus. So, it, I mean, if you don't have, like, the passengers, some of them, if you don't, they don't, if they're familiar with the V-22, they're having times feel like, you know, bags and, and stuff has gone out the back ramp because they just don't know to grab on it because they're not oh, used wow. to that. And, like, there's been yeah. more than one case where, you know, they've had to send out patrol for somebody, you know, leaves a secret, a secret briefcase, goes out the back, like, uh, um, that sort of thing. <laughs> so, the, the acceleration is something that really gets people's attention the first time they, uh, they take off in one. Yeah, we had guys that were working out of uh, Iraq into Syria, and one of the ways that we would get parts and supplies and stuff out to them was a Osprey that would that were, I think it was Air Force guys, but they were running them out there. And and yeah, the guys that flew on them, they were like, man, it's so weird because you're sitting there and you're sitting sideways against the the fuselage, and just that that momentum, that sudden shift of forward airspeed. I mean, everybody was like, yeah, you're just like leaning you know, hard into the guy next to you because it's just, uh, just so rapid, you know, that, that increase of velocity. I mean, what, what was that transition like mentally, like going from 46s to V 22s and having to think about things in a very different mindset? So I, I was, what was it? It, it was, it's the mechanics of flying V 22 are not that difficult. I mean, I always tell people, it's like, if you have like just a regular private pilot's license, I could teach you how to, you know, get around the pattern of V-22 in, you know, one sortie, right? Yeah. To take off, go rounds, you know, come back, land. That's not a, mechanically not hard to do. It's a very stable aircraft. I mean, hovering in a V-22 is very simple. Um, like, we have jet guys in our class. They transition from jets to V-22s. Now, at the time, I was thinking, this is garbage. You know, this is a helicopter, you know. But it turns right. out we needed those guys because they bring a whole different perspective to it. But they... You know, helicopter guys have this thing about hovering. We think it's like magic, you know, and right. so we're like, yeah, well, you never hover. <laughs> Don't tell me what it is. It is magic. <laughs> and then it's like, and, it, and then 46 or a regular helicopter doesn't have fly by wire and all, all you know, all the next right. you know, digital stabilization. I mean, we had AFCS, but that's, 
you know, 1960s type technology, you know, you have no kid in digital flight controls, you know, you just push the power in, trim into the wind, you know, however much, and it, it'll stay there. And yeah. the, the fixed wing guys are like, I don't know what you guys are talking about hovers and all this much. This, this shit is easy. Um, but you know, yeah, that's bullshit. They should have to go through like, you know, the, what do you guys call it? the TH 55? I think, uh, 57 or 57. Yeah, yeah. That's bullshit. They should have to go do that first and then they can run their mouths. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, they ran their mouths anyway. Um, sure. Well, but, they're yeah. fighter pilots. That's what they do. <laughs> but, you know, I, you know, but it's sort of like, you have to know tactically to employ it correctly. You have to know pretty much everything you need to know as a helicopter pilot in terms of, you know, just knowing yeah. how the objective area flow works, you know, and all, and how to plan for an assault, um, integration with the ground scheme maneuver, all that stuff. But you also have to know all the fixed wing tactics and working in three dimensions. I sort of think of the first time yeah. I did an instrument sim in the V-22, I filed for the minimum menu altitude because damn, that's as much as I'm yeah. going to get in the helicopter. And as long as I can, right. I can get the nav aids on, you know, reach me the whole way, I'll just stay on that Victor airway. I'm cool. And then the instructor's yeah. like, why did you do that? This is an airplane. You know, it, it burns gas better at altitude, by the way, you know, yeah. less gas. Right. And, right. you know, and the air is smoother. You're not, you know, you're going to be above the clouds. So in the clouds, you know, it's like, there's a million reasons that you should, the minimum at altitude is not like the one you go to as default. It's like, that's the minimum. Don't do that if you don't have yeah. to. Right. And so like, okay, so I'm supposed to like, vertically as well that's a dimension i didn't you know yeah. helicopters are always kind of like you know 500 feet from the surface that's our safety yeah. blanket and yeah. you know we think about yeah they don't want to fly higher than i can fall right and right. um no, that's right so and if there's a threat you know it's like i'm just gonna go i'm gonna turn i'm gonna go lower you know and there's a limit yeah. to how low yeah. you can really go right um sure. whereas these jet guys start saying okay start thinking three-dimensionally okay now you have enough range that maybe you can go around that thing that you thought you'd have to go through um, if you're hit, you know, if you're actually shot or observed, you know, there's different ways to react and it might involve not just going down, um, yeah. and thinking about it that way, you know, really, op- you know, it's eye opening to think of the three dimensional space, you know, much, a much different way. It's, it's not pressurized, is it? Nah. So you got, uh, okay. usually four, so you can get the, the, all the crew members can go on oxygen. Um, okay. Typically, you know, you're going to be limited up to 13,000. Then if you have troops on board, if you're carrying cargo, you can go all the way up to service ceiling. Um, Now for special operations, they actually do have, there is a a cart that you can wheel oxygen on there, but that's not usually employed for normal, you know, circumstances. That's more of a soft kind of thing for special stuff. Halos uh, and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, But yeah, for your leg infantry, you're not going to be employing that, you know, just so th- yeah, for now it's it's unpressurized. You're limited by that. So you know, sort of think of you know the normal limits of unpressurized flight when you have passengers on board. Yeah, I mean, I, I when I got my private pilot's license flying a Cessna around Louisiana, and I was terrified to go above three thousand feet. Like I don't know why. I just I couldn't plan myself to fly above three thousand because yeah, it's it's scary up at, at altitude and and. Uh, but I think too about the transition of, like you said, going, thinking about things as a fixed wing guy, you know, for me transitioning to airlines and, and flying 737s, you're just going so much faster than my brain is used to. And the hardest part has been that, you know, the terminal area, you know, when to descend, when to slow down, when to make that transition. And I can imagine the, the struggles that you guys probably went through at least early on, um, 
especially if you did have a background in helicopters of like, okay, this thing's going faster than my brain is, is used to making these adjustments. When do I start to decelerate? When do I start to, did you guys plan that out pretty far in advance before flight? Or is it something just kind of came naturally? Like, how did you guys? It, it depends on the type of the mission because there are some, like we mentioned, 240 knots. That was a common speed, partially because it's, yeah. uh, you know, um, tactically sound, but also because it makes four miles a minute makes for really easy math in your head. Um, right. as far as like buying your descent, like, okay, well, how many, how many feet down is the descent? So if I'm traveling yeah. four up four miles a minute, it tells me exactly when I have to tip in. Um, <laughs> yeah. but for, you know, obviously for the more, and that's good if you're just going like fob to fob or, uh, or whatever. So you could just, cause you want to stay, you know, for a low threat environment, you're going to want to stay higher above all the small arms and, and most of your, like just say low level, say, you know, low number SAMs, yeah. you know, if you stay at that high ends of. Uh, of uh, what you can be on unpressurized crew or unpressurized, with unpressurized passengers, you know, you, you can stay above a lot of stuff and you just want to tip in at the last possible moment and you do a spiral in or, or uh, tip in, keep your head, your speed up. But if you're doing some more complex mission, then, you know, your altitude is going to change based on whether aircraft are, are flying above or below you. Um, so in that case, yeah, you could, you want to, you know, have a specific point where, you know, it's no kidding on your, your nav system. And that's when you're going to pull the power back and descend in. And, you know, you may have a turn in there at some point. So at that point, yeah, you're going to do a little bit more, you know, poking around the computer to get the physics right and make sure it's, it's, yeah. you know, perfect. So it's, it's given you, I'm just picturing again, you know, the, the flight management in the seven three, it's telling you, Hey, this is, this is where you should start to descend. And this is, you know, how far out and this is where you should turn is it it's giving you that kind of data or you can at least extrapolate that yeah so like i said if you're just doing ash and trash you're probably just gonna figure yeah. it out on your own but yeah you can pre-plan yeah. it on the the laptop in the flight planning room and it'll give you a profile okay. that figures out okay this is your deceleration rate and all the rest and, and you really you okay. know, get it down and pre-plan it okay but the but the aircraft itself can't tell you that like mid-mission you can't change like okay i'm gonna fly here and it's gonna tell you okay well then you need to you need to start descending at this point from this altitude. Yeah, actually, you can, but it's generally such okay. a, a pain in the pain in the butt. You're not going to want to sure. have to you know, <laughs> hand jam this stuff on a 1980s like 8-bit computer yeah. for 20 minutes. So typically, if I'm in the air, I'm probably going to like, okay, I plan for this, this X changed. All right, I'm going to do some of that mental rule of thumb. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But that being said, you know, it's been a, a minute since I've flown one, and they they actually do do software updates, and that's one of the other cool things about the aircraft sure. is occasionally a software update unlocks some like magic in the computer and you're like, wow, you know, whether it's a, yeah. a new landing mode or, you know, this, when I was, I've been flying them for like five years and then they did a software drop and wow, the top cruise speed just increased by like 15 knots. Um, right, you know, just cause of software. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, it's all fly by wire. So it was, once the physicists and the, you know, and the aerodynamic engineers figure out, oh, well, if we do this, it's going to give you more power and more, you know, you can get more uh, bite on the blades right. and we'll, we'll update the software. Like, wow. You know? Um, yeah. so that's sort of the, the, uh, and that, you know, V 22 is kind of part of the first generation of digital aircraft, but uh, you know, becoming from something that's all, you know, pulleys and bell cranks and a CH 46, you're like, wow, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. You know, like you said, that it, it's just from a software change that suddenly the capability, nothing changed physically in the aircraft, but it's, I guess, understanding its limitations better uh, through 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 science and, and, and figuring some math out in the computer. But, I mean, I guess that kind of goes back to the whole, um, 
the bad rap that the the Osprey had when it first came out and and all the problems that it you know apparently had and I mean I've heard stories of it taking off on its own like you know weird shit like that I don't know how much of that stuff is true but I mean what can you speak to the early days of the Osprey as far as just I mean there, there's there's kind of the, the two periods you know so you know it started in the 80s you know in the wake of you know the Desert One they needed an aircraft that could you know do that type of mission, that long range mission to a, a target and get back, you know, and they call it one period of darkness. They want us, you know, what can we do to yeah. get something that fast and, and that, that, so with that range. And so it started way back in the eighties and they had some prototypes and that the mid to late nineties, they did have a run of severe mishaps with the test program. And you really can't, you know, that was before my time. So I can't speak directly to it. I just think, you know, it's one of those things they so they stood down the program for a couple of years and that's when they sort of retooled the aircraft and made some big configuration changes. A lot of stuff had been sort of kludged together because they needed to make test deadlines and, and, you know, they had to show different milestones to, you know, keep the program alive. And I think they probably got too ambitious too soon with a, an emerging technology and, you know, it, bad things happened. Um, they retooled it. I sort of, I was one of the first guys to come on after they, shut the program down for two years. I was part of the guys that the first class after that stood back up. Um, and, I, and I like to say, it's like, if they just run the program from the beginning, at, like they were the second time through, yeah, it probably would have avoided that, that massive, you know, some of those, some of those bad mishaps and, and some of that reputation that came from it. Um, I think a lot of the reputation, actually, I, I completely think the reputation is unwarranted because the statistics on mishaps just don't bear it out. Um, it has a, you know, the same mishap rate as the Marine Corps average. Um, so, you know, not the average is what you really want to aspire to, but it just, it's, it's sure. the same as everything else. Now, does, it, does it know. still have that reputation though? Like, I mean, is that still an issue that, that you know of? Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's lessened over time. I mean, the, when I first joined the program, it was people would talk to, you know, we go to you, you go to an air show or, you know, public event and people talk to you like you're evil can evil or something like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. <laughs> and like, dude, it, it's a job. I'm mil- I'm not a test pilot. I'm just a regular military pilot, you know, that, you know, yeah. and, uh, um, doing it, you know, it's a regular assault aircraft, you know, it's doing what we do and, and yeah, they occasionally go down. And the thing is like, in my mind, you know, if an H 60, which is kind of in my mind, the generic helicopter crashes somewhere in the world, it's the headline is military crap, you know, helicopter mishap, you know, hard landing, right. you know, aircraft destroyed. No one, you know, unless it was huge fatalities, no one's going to notice. Um, right. If an Osprey has something go, you know, has a, you know, someone drops a dip can out the back of the aircraft and it hits somebody, you, you'd think a, you know, nuclear bomb went yeah. off. Right. And then just the way it's uh, gets shared and, 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 and so forth and uh, in the media or, or online social media. And then the, you know, the amateur aerodynamicists start doing their theories, yeah. like, you know, slow down guys. It's, it's military, it's dangerous business. You do missions that are more demanding than a lot than most other aviation missions. Bad stuff will occasionally happen, you know, X times per hundred thousand flat hours. And that's, that's what it is. Yeah. hundred percent. How, so how long did you fly the Osprey for? Uh, so, transitioned uh 2004 and got out in uh 2015 so about 11 years okay well so you've got quite a bit of time in it yeah I, so yeah spent yeah so I, I 
did one full, you know, four years in the 46 and then uh, a little over two years teaching flight school and then uh, transitioned, uh, like I said, uh, 2004 and spent the, the rest of my time in Ospreys, except for one year I got to, uh, did an IA to teach Afghan security forces. Um, so that, that six months of TBS really paid off for that year of teaching Afghan <laughs> police officers. So Finally, every Marine is a rifleman. It made it all worthwhile. Like they me. Yes. That's it. Uh, um, well, yeah, that, that sounds like that could be a whole, a whole show into itself, uh, training the Afghans. Um, so, so you, so then you retired from the Marines and you've got, I mean, I'm doing a math in my head. What's that like 24 years? Uh, 20 years. So yeah. So okay, you did 20. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. 1995, 2015. Okay. 95. Okay. Oh, you started college in 91. That's, yeah. That's yeah. I'm screwed up. Gotcha. Um, okay. But yeah, I got, uh, you know, Thought I was going to be Action Jackson on the backside, and I, you know, just looking for uh, flying jobs, and you know, trying. Well, I'm going to be a contractor, you know, for one of those, yeah. you know, semi shady airlift companies, and yeah. uh, do government, you know, like looking at all that sort of stuff and EMS and all the rest. But I ended up uh, flying for the first few years after I got out. I was, I was flying uh, police helicopters for Baltimore City Police. Um, okay. So got got back to the rotary side, and and after going, like I was saying earlier, going from a you know, fly-by-wire, digital flight controls, digitally stabilized, to going back to an Airbus 120 or EC-120, uh, yeah. unstabilized, no automatic anything. It was like yeah. going from driving a, you know, a Lincoln Continental to like, here's your Kawasaki Ninja, have fun. Uh, yeah. A hell of adjustment to go back to a, a real helicopter after all that time. Oh, bro, I'm with you. I, I mean, I, everything I flew in the military was you know glass cockpit i did all my fixed wing training in a cessna g1000 glass cockpit fully automated you know coupled flight director all this stuff i, I start working i'm flying 737s that are from the 80s they're they're 300s they have all, all steam gauge you know the the flight director is a little like plastic thingy that pops up on the you know in the gauge and you just <laughs> You know, turn, move the yoke so that your little thingy matches up with the little other plastic thingy, and then now you're on flight path. And yeah, it's it's uh, I can understand the the feeling that you probably went through. Um, yeah, it's a weird. So, but but you're doing what now? So I do uh, I work, uh, work for for Bell now actually. So I do business development. So do I, you know, trying to get the government to buy more of our aircraft. It's basically my my job now. Um, okay. Turns out it's actually much better work conditions talking about helicopters than actually flying them. So, so yeah, about so, better on the back. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, much easier on the back. And based on how I feel today, it's like yeah, I don't think I'd do another 15 years getting vibrated through the uh, L5 for for until I got another retirement. Was the Osprey better though for that? Uh, yeah, it is. It's uh, it's a lot smoother for airplane. Once you're down the down stops, it's. it's it feels like an airplane. So it's, it's pretty smooth, probably a little bit louder on the inside than most uh, airplanes, but on the outside, not. And it definitely doesn't vibrate. Um, it does. And when, when you're in VTOL, so all the way up uh, like a helicopter, uh, yeah. doesn't vibrate. Where it doesn't like being is in between. And so if you're cruising right. around at your little over 100 knots, it does 60 nacelle-ish. Uh, it does shake around a bit, but you're not there like all day. You're either going to land or going to take off so most of the time it's pretty smooth oh okay so it'll change based on your speeds yeah so you'll uh you'll choose you know based on you know what you're doing what's the appropriate one so if i'm 
up and away. Obviously, you want, you want to be an airplane. It's the most efficient, fastest, everything. Sure. Obviously, if you're landing, it's got to be vertical. And then if you're, you know, say you're doing an instrument approach, you know, shoot, set it, you know, 60 degrees, be at 110, 115 knots, uh, put the gear down, then you just, you know, be a nice category B. You can go to category A if you need to. Um, and, shoot, you know, if you want to slow down to 80 and get the helicopter mins, you can raise them up a little bit more. So you kind of adjust it for the, the situation you're in. So it, it it doesn't adjust on its own, though? That's something you've got to manually manipulate? It can do both. So typically, okay. flying tactically, you're going to do it manually with a little thumb wheel. It's on the uh, it's called the thrust control lever. Um, so it works like a throttle. So you push for more power, pull for less power, not like a helicopter. Yeah. Um, but okay. then there's a thumb wheel that you can basically you pull back on your thumb. It goes, the nacelles roll towards vertical. If you push it forward, they go down towards zero. Um, and then, if, but if you go into coupled flight, so you use the flight director, uh, there's different, there's several different modes, um, but basically you engage what's called auto nacelle. So if you dial the speed, it'll set the nacelles for the appropriate for that speed. Okay. All right. So sense. if I, if I'm doing like a, a long instrument flight, I'm probably going to engage that. And then at some point, you know, prior to landing, you know, if I'm set up on final, I'll, you know, disengage the auto nacelle and, and take it over manually at some point. I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but I'm curious. I'm assuming there's some sort of procedure, like if the nacelle gets stuck. Uh, yeah, there's there's a DP for that. There's various, you know, you have, you know, it goes sort of troubleshoots you down from, you know, first obviously get control of the aircraft, make sure everything's cool, but then looking at the electronic sources of, you know, resetting the electronics, and then as you work your way down, okay, is there something physically wrong with this thing, and it's no kidding stuck? And there's a redundancy mm-hmm. mode in there that you kind of an emergency thing you can do. Uh, so yeah, they, they thought of that and that, you know, I think people have had jams at a relatively high nacelle settings. So they kind of just, oh. if you're at a higher nacelle setting, um, you can just land on the long runway and just, you know, right. pull the power back to slow down. Um, so it's, you can't actually do run on running takeoffs, running landings, just use the intermediate nacelle setting appropriate for your you know situation and weights and, and runway length. Yeah. But if it's all the way down, those blades are you can't clear the ground with the landing gear. Like right. Hit the ground, yeah? So there's a minimum in the cell setting where it's physically, it's, it is going to touch the ground if you land with it. So yeah. the blades are designed to shatter away from the aircraft. So you will okay. walk away from it. I mean, I, I'm pretty confident of that, but yeah, the aircraft's not yeah. going to look very good afterwards. Sure. Well, yeah, fuck it. But, but yeah, I guess that's what I was thinking, but the, you, what you're saying, they're, they're rotating in such a way that if they hit the ground, they're, they're shooting away from the aircraft. Um, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was just kind of thought about that and I guess I never thought of it until I started flying, uh, uh, jets, you know, cause you know, the helicopter, you know, flaps, you know, what are flaps? Um, but you know, I landed the other day, we, we had a, a flaps, uh, asymmetric flaps. So, so one set of flaps went down to like 15 and one stopped at five. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to, you know, basically reset them and stuff. But I was thinking about that from the nacelles, like, well, shit, what would, you know, that would be pretty, pretty horrendous if I guess one nacelle was pointing up and the other was pointing down or, you know, up and intermediate or, or whatever. It's so, pretty wild, so, I imagine. Yeah. So there's actually like, there's a system that it detects if there's a difference between the nacelles and uh-huh. if, if a, a significant enough difference is detected, it'll stop you from raising either one of them until you sort oh, out wow, the okay. issue. Um, so yeah, obviously okay. that would have huge air. So they want, they want to keep yeah. them pretty tightly coupled. Um, yeah. So you're not allowed to have one like crazy pointed up at the sky and one, one won't. Yeah, that would be huge. Okay. No, that's interesting. That's, that's pretty cool. That's good to know. 
Um, yeah, very cool. Well, I know you, you've got to get to work, um, talking people into buying bell products, uh, which I flew bell products and I endorsed them. So if you guys are looking for a sponsor, I'm happy to do it. Uh, we can figure out the payment plan later. But um, but no, I know we've talked in the past too about some maybe some people that could come on and talk a little bit about the, the future of rotary and, and tilt rotor. And I know Bell is working on some some interesting things. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much you can speak to that now, but I know you said you've got some smarter guys that can talk about that stuff. Well, yeah, it's looks, been looks yeah, probably talk, next, we probably set up our, our next time. I said probably need to. If you talk about the current stuff, I'll have to go through all the corporate PR um, uh, <laughs> business to do it. But uh, I mean, suffice sure. to say, the, the, the Osprey is, you know, the, the first generation of modern tilt rotor. And, you know, there's the Army needs to replace its medium lift, just like the, you know, Marine Corps did its uh, few years back. And now, you know, Bell's trying to get the next generation of tilt rotor to um, to do that medium lift assault mission. You know, so uh, all the things that, you know, I was thinking. You know, having looked at the new, you know, the V280, it's kind of like all the things I used to drive me crazy about the Osprey and everyone has their things about the aircraft. It's like, why wasn't this, you know, thought of or whatever? And it's kind of like the first time I saw the, the V280, it's like, wow, they took all the comment cards and they just did something about all of them. So Someone's finally listening. Yes, someone's yeah. finally listening many years later. And uh, it's like, wow, I wish I would have had the chance to, to fly something like that uh, back in the day. I think that's like the worst part of, of a career in aviation because yeah, like the Apaches now, I mean, the guys are getting like full color screens and stuff and, you know, you just see this stuff and you're like, man, I wish I'd have had that. And then, you know, you talk to a guy who flew years before you and you tell him about the stuff you had. And now you realize that you were like a, a wizard compared to the shit he had. Um, yeah, it's just the nature of the beast, but it's good to see, like you said, that somebody's paying attention to the, the criticisms and the, like the comments and, and making those changes. So that's good stuff. But yeah, it's just one of those things. I think the, you know, the Army Marines have culturally is that, you know, aren't really aligned and see each other suspect. And so I see there's right. reluctance to to go the same way as the other one. But it's it's kind of one of those things you see how much the, uh, you know, going faster changes things. I, one thing always reminds me of is like I did, I was on, a, you know, we're talking about Mews earlier. So I was on the Mew that went to Afghanistan in 2001, like right after 9-11. I mean, we're the first conventional forces in Afghanistan. So we had to fly from uh, the ship, you know, stop in Pakistan and then fly to Kandahar and, and, and do operations there. So in the siege 46 flying in the pa- in and out of Pakistan with the like 10,000 foot mountains I got there, that feels yeah. like you're, you're riding down the ski slope with like a buckboard. It, it's, <laughs> you know, every, it, it doesn't want to go that high. And the, you know, the, you can hear the metal creak and they, they have the, there's a strain gauge called a cruise guide indicator. It's always pegged out because the turbulence is so high around the mountain peaks. And you're like, oh, this, this yeah. is the worst. You know, then you have to refuel at the secret, air, you know, air gas station. And, you know, then you have to go through a sandstorm and you know, you're with no, you know, no you know, ATC and all this other business. Yeah. And I did they the same no option. Yeah. I did the same flight in 2009. We had to deliver our. After doing a you know six or seven months on deployment and whatever it was, we had to you know deliver our Ospreys to Afghanistan so another unit could fall in on them. So, no kidding, it was like we flew from the ship to Camp Bastion at the time. It was like it was about as exciting as flying from like Des Moines to Minneapolis. It was it was like right. this is a thing. It's like I just freaking punched up to the altitude we were required to go at. Just put the put the oxygen hose on and just freaking you know put the 
put the heading on the on the bug and then we we relax and landed like this this is awesome you know this is this is the way uh you know it should be yeah no it's um yeah it's becoming much easier and and that distance and speed i mean obviously we can pay attention to what's going on in ukraine and and see long-range precision fires and and all the things and just being able to start your day further away from bad guys is a much better recipe than than what i think we've been practicing for a really long time what we've been limited to for a really long time based on our capabilities and um and it's hard to train that too like you talked about the ship you know okay we can be 50 miles but it'd be easier if we were five you know i I saw that a lot at the joint readiness training center you know we we would have the helicopters parked right on top of you know where they're operating and i'm like but yeah but in theory they should be like this far away we need to make them practice that and, and everyone's like behind that, like, yeah, yeah, we need to make them fly this, this, we call it a penalty route. You know, they got to fly this long distance and then stop here and get gas because that's what they would do, you know, at this far up and then they'd roll into combat. All that shit goes right out the window, you know, yeah. because the ground force doesn't have time for that. Like, oh, we don't, we don't want to wait for all that bullshit. And it's like, yeah, but you're, you're, you're not replicating real life and you're hurting the crews by doing that. And you're hurting yourself, quite frankly, by doing that because you're, you're, uh, you're setting yourself up for mentally believing that you're going to get all this stuff right away. And in the future conflicts, you're really not because that shit's a hundred miles away and it's got to get here because if we park it any closer, it's going to get, it's going to get smacked. But, um, no, absolutely. It's, that's the future, whether, whether you like it or not, that is the future of weird tilt rotor shit and push pusher props, I guess too. Yeah. Well, I hope not, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, you definitely can't, uh, <laughs> um, that's not good for the bottom line. Nah, and honestly, yeah, I'm not gonna go into all that. But I, I think it's there's a you need something that goes fast and far. And, you know how you achieve that? Yeah. There's there's different technologies, and um, yeah. you know I, I'm partial to you know I have to haven't flown like a an Osprey for a while, and haven't flown as a helicopter. Like yeah, um, this this is the really way you want to go. And I think uh, once you sort of open up your uh, your helicopter aperture and start th- seeing things yeah. like you know yeah maneuvering you can displace like you know from a helicopter popping chair popping the flares or chaff to where it can displace is x amount of distance because you're only going this fast only turn this fast to all right you're an airplane you have big wing that you can apply to you know change your you know change your direction change your altitude change your speed simultaneously you know just from you know the distance you know thinking about how an actual tactical maneuvering would go against the threat systems you're looking at it's you know i i think there's we, we like to get set in our ways and there's i, I swear to god you still see sure. people online there frogs forever that was the frogs were that was a nickname for 46s and you still occasionally mm-hmm. see that these guys like oh yeah we have to do it the way we did in vietnam it's like you yeah. know in vietnam we left like hundreds of aircraft like in lz's <laughs> throughout that country maybe that's not <laughs> yeah. something we can revisit anymore right so yeah yeah. yeah, a lot of times your helicopters were like throwaway pieces of equipment. You know, you'd hear about guys who got shot down, you know, two, three times in the same day, you know, and they would just get picked up and go get another aircraft, you know. Um, those aircraft were not designed to last the way that, you know, you're talking about this thing that automatically does things for you and it's got computers and calculate stuff and we just can't afford to, to live like that. But no, I, I agree 100%. And it is very easy to get stuck in your ways and, and, uh, and in, because there's a nostalgia attached to it. You know, I look at these new aircraft coming out and of course my gut reaction is, well, you know, I, I like Apaches and Kiowas, you know, that that's, that's right. But that's just because, you know, aesthetically or, you know, some sort of nostalgia reason I don't like it. But then, like you said, when you, when you start peeling back the layers of the onion and looking at, well, what do these things do? What do they bring to the the capabilities? 
then it's kind of hard to argue with. Yeah, for sure. Well, I will let you go then and let you go do good things uh, for Bell and, and ultimately for our nation. But uh, I appreciate you taking the time and, and talking to us and uh, yeah, we'll definitely, we'll, we'll line something up. I'd, I'd love to hear more about uh, the future of, of Bell and, and what they got going on. And uh, yeah, no, it's been, it's been good talking to you. Uh, glad to be here. It was a fun time and I look forward to talking to you again.